Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, Derek and Kieran are joined by Amanda Wiss. Amanda is an American television and film actress, famous for her roles in movies such as A Nightmare on Elm Street, where she played the role of Tina, who was Freddy Krueger's first on-screen kill. She also appeared in Silverado and Better Off Dead, and has had several leading roles on television including Highlander the series, Woody Harrelson's girlfriend in the legendary sitcom Cheers, and guest starred in Dexter and Charmed. We discussed the filming of these iconic scenes in the first of the Elm Street movies, and just how scared he was the man himself on set. Let Christy Taker are proud to bring you Amanda Wiss. Please, God. This is God. So, Amanda Wiss, welcome to Let Chrissy Take a Podcast. We're over the moon to have you. Um, I hope the weather is good where you are, whichever part of the world you're in. It is. It's blue skies and chilly for Los Angeles. Um, what's it like? What's it like where you are? It is quite cold. Quite cold. Well, it's always. It's never really too warm in Ireland, if I'm being honest. Right? But uh, it's quite cold uh, this evening. Um, there's ice on the cars in the morning, and we actually had a bit of sleet or snow. It wasn't snow today, was it, Karen? It's supposed to snow tonight and tomorrow, so it's it's. Oh it's, my it's, gosh! It's typical spring weather in uh, Dublin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're all over the place here. We're they it was um cold and raining and then the next day it was 85 and then it's you know, we I we have no idea what's happening here. It's 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 the the weather's gone mad. <laughs> the world's gone mad. The world has gone mad. Yeah, yeah. The world has gone mad. That is exactly true. Okay, Amanda, I'll bring you right back. Do you have fond <laughs> memories of growing up in LA? Well, I do. You know, I grew up in um, a small little beach town, which isn't small anymore. It's in Manhattan Beach. Um, but at the time, it was like straight out of like a Beach Boy song. And it was it was really fun. We surfed and played volleyball and skateboarded and roller skated. And, you know, um, I was a cheerleader. <laughs> I was class president. I was totally, you know, a dork. And um you know, it was fun. It was, it was, it was, a, I don't know now about raising kids there, but when I grew up there, it was, it was really small town. Um, everybody knew each other, which is rare in Los Angeles. You don't really have little enclaves where, and I don't know that that even exists anymore, but at the time, um, a million years ago, they just invented the car. <laughs> it was ideal to grow up there. Sounds like a tagline to a movie, wasn't there? It's a nice place to raise a child. Some film had that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And do you remember the moment when you decided that, you know, I'm going to be an actor or acting's for me? Do you want to know what's so funny? I was just talking to my boyfriend because I was I was putting on some makeup um, and it made me think of a show. Did you guys have this in Ireland? Although you might be too young. It was called HR Puffin Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Jack. Okay. Jack Hawkins. 
Yes. And so whenever the, the, I think it was the witch, she'd go makeup and they'd hit her with the big powder puff. And so, right. I, I was, I got out, you know, I was meditating. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to go put on some makeup. And then I go, do you remember HR puppets? And we started talking about that. And I said, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be on that show. And then I went, oh my gosh, that must've been when I thought I wanted to be an actor. It, it's so funny. Cause I always thought it was I had got asked to do a play when I was 11 here in Los Angeles called The Innocence, a William Inge play. And I loved it. So I thought that's when I went, oh, this is great. I want to figure out how to keep doing this. But I think it was before that because I wanted to be on that show and Hobo Kelly. I don't know if Hobo Kelly was regional to where I grew up. But. Don't think we got Hobo Kelly. No, I don't think we got Hobo Kelly. Definitely hate your puffing stuff. I can, I'm actually singing the song in my head. Me I'm too. Me, me too. too. <laughs> HR puffing stuff. Push your bend when things get rough. HR puffing stuff. Can't do a little because it can't do enough. Obviously, you're really fascinated by the arts. How was there a plan B ever growing up or was this it, 100% acting? I did not have a plan B, although I don't recommend that. I think because there has been, you know, obviously some lean years. I'm, I've been a really successful journeyman actor or character actor, you know, without being, you know, an A-list or possibly even a B-list, don't tell anyone, um, celebrity. Uh, but there's been some lean years, um, which are, you know, good character building years and things, but I never had a plan B. So I had to get up every day and, you know, okay, how do I make this work? And um, and then I always stop landing on my feet. I'm super grateful and lucky that I still get to do what I like to do. I mean, I wish I got to do it more and I wish some of the projects were better, <laughs> but you know, I kept my health insurance <laughs> and I just keep plugging away. And I just try to find joy in the process because sometimes, you know, the downtimes can be disappointing yeah, to find a positive spin. <laughs> Amanda, do you remember what your first paying gig was? Yes. My first paying gig I was in, I was a young teenager and I got a Pepsi commercial and I was, um, this is actually, oh my gosh, I, I was a young beach girl um, who was taking her Hobie cat through the surf out from the beach. So, I mean, do you get, do you know, it's, is it called the same thing in Ireland? It's like two pontoons and a yeah. canvas between them and a sail. That was the lamest description of a Hobie cat, but you guys don't understand. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not a sailor. I don't know the technical terms. So I was told by my agent at the time, you know, no matter what anybody asks you on, on an audition, tell them, yes, you know how to do it. And so they were like, do you know how to sail? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up at the beach. I can sail. And um, do you know how to take a boat from the beach, from the sand to the sea? And, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So I, I get the job. It never occurs to me that I'm going to have to do this thing I lied about. And so I was a minor. My dad had to take the day off work and come with me. And um, we get there. And my dad is a sailor. And I mean, I could sail like a little, the little sabbat that was on the back of his boat and stuff, but, you know, not very well. And um, so we get there. My dad goes, you told them what? <laughs> he goes, you can't 
can't do that. First of all, you're going to die. Second of all, you have no idea what you're doing. So anyway, I get there and my dad has to tell the director that I lied. Oh, it was so awful. I was just sitting there and everyone's yelling and they're trying to find some other young actor to do the part. And um, then finally they realize that they're losing light. We're at the beach in Malibu and it's freezing. I'm in a bathing suit. I'm like just going, oh, this is this is not good. And then they finally hired a body double to come and sail the boat out. And then they just filmed me sitting on the boat drinking my Coke or my Pepsi. Sorry. And um, so that was my first paid job. And it was, it was definitely went, wow, this business isn't all, you know, wine and roses and joy. So yeah. So I I I I had a real earthy understanding of how things are kind of Um Amanda, you started appearing on TV in the early 80s in shows such as um When the Whistle Blows and Book Rogers in the 25th century. Yeah. How did you feel when you finally got to see yourself on TV? Well, Buck Rogers was the first episodic I'd done um that wasn't or, you know, that wasn't a commercial or um, a play. Um, and I was so excited and I was still in high school. No, right. I graduated. Might've been the summer after I graduated high school, I was still a teenager. And I get there and I'm so excited that I'm going to be working on Buck Rogers. I'm a huge sci-fi fan. Like that's my jam, a sci-fi and romantic comedy, but um I go there and then they put me in like that weird toga thing that looks like they took somebody's pillowcase, dipped it in tea and said, here's your outfit. And I was like, man, my first time on TV, I wanted to wear like something fancy and be all done up and no makeup, no nothing. Um, Anyway, well, a little bit of makeup. So that was really, really fun. And they were nice. And I'm still friendly and friends adjacent or, you know, acquaintances with Aaron Gray, who's one of the nicest, most beautiful people on the planet. Well, your, your big movie break was the classic, classic Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Can you tell us how you got cast in that movie? Um, I got sent the script and obviously wanted to play the Jennifer Jason Lee part. And they were like, sorry, it's already been cast. I'm like, oh, um, and she's amazing. Um, so I went in and met, it was Amy Heckerling, the casting director and Judge Reinhold was in the room. And they basically just, Amy, who's fantastic, um, asked me to do an improv with Judge and we just improv the breakup scene. And then I left and I was like, I don't know. And then by, by the time I got home, they'd called to say I had the part and it was it was really exciting. And um, because even just from the script and my agents saying it, because I was still young, so I wasn't great at assessing Actually, I've never been great at assessing whether something's going to be. I, I've, I've bet I've backed the wrong pony a few times. Um, they, they were like, "This is going to be the new American Graffiti," and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And you know what? I guess it is in some circles. 
so yeah. yeah that was that was pretty great you, you got great acclaim for that and still a relatively uh early role in your career how did you handle that um well you know what while i was doing it i didn't have any sense of what was going to happen afterwards you know i was just working on that and and i had a relatively you know a smaller role compared to you know some of the other people in the film. And so we all hung out, but it was like, you know, I wasn't there as much as they were and stuff. And so I just didn't have the idea except that I knew everybody was really talented because I was, I was just coming out of drama school. So I was like really stuck up about, Oh, they're very talented. But um, the interesting thing about that movie is that every single person in that movie is either went on to be a huge star or is like a journeyman character actor like me or left the business and is hugely successful. It's the weirdest. I mean, I, I was some like magic um, spell Amy and Art Linson put on the production, I think. Yeah, as you said, it's such an eclectic cast. Uh, are you surprised at the film's uh, underlying popularity? Like it's still very, very popular. Yeah. You know what? I am not because I don't think it's good. I just am always like mystified by what clicks and what doesn't. Do you know what I mean? Because there's a million great movies that just don't click or not a million, but you know, I, yeah. let me just exaggerate. There's a trillion. No. There are so many good movies that don't click. And I always wonder what is the magic or what's the essence that sets a movie apart that, um, I was sitting on a panel at a Comic-Con once with um, Robert England, who is, plays Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I know you guys know, probably. Um, and somebody asked what made Nightmare on Elm Street stay so relevant in the horror or, or in, just, in just regular cinema in some ways. And he believes it's, it's, I'm trying to remember, I don't want to over ruin what he said, but it has to do with the, the chemistry that's created, whether it's on set or through editing, but also like fast times in that era was the first generation starting, you know, just a few years after it came out where people could own a VHS copy of it. So it's kind of, it's the first movies that people made friends with in their own home they became either like a holiday view or whenever the all the, the crazy aunts and uncles come over so i think fast times falls in that category with some of those earlier 80 films but i do think it still has to do it's a good script of it i mean i think that has to be i think things die if the script isn't any good i mean I, but then there's movies that are stay that aren't i don't know but i think it does have to do with a good script chemistry um but i think it has a lot to do with that first generation of vhs owners. Yeah. what do you guys think that's a great point i just think you know i just think that i film absolutely i still have movies on betamax that belong to my <laughs> that belong to my father and we'd watch them and you now sometimes they're like a comfort blanket and we look back nostalgically at them with the yes. we might have watched it at a time when things weren't great we might have watched it when we had a first girlfriend boyfriend whatever and you know they always have these memories it's like music it's associated with yeah. that film yes so see i think i do think that's a large part of it but with that there's movies from the 30s and 40s 50s 60s 70s that are hugely relevant so there's more to it than that but i do think that some of the reason that 
early 80s movies are so special to so many people. I think that's the VHS component. That's my opinion. But I do think, you know, it's it's good script, great chemistry. If the people on screen don't have chemistry, we can't connect because if they're not having it with each other, we can't have it with them. So I think that's part of it too. I have to say that's a brilliant, brilliant analogy because myself and Kieran have spent many more hours than we would care to mention trying to quantify you know why certain films 80s films especially we, we would be fans of and why they click and have remained in the you know the zeitgeist or in the, the people's consciousness for so long yeah that's a good uh well and i think too if, if the writer and the director tap into an archetypal story that is ageless um relationships breakups um having to do a job we hate you know or just things like like if just to go with fast times like there's some quite a few universal themes going on in there um you know uh the fast times and um nightmare on elm street touch on the generation of teenagers that are sort of the first in america of sort of mass divorce. So there, there's nobody really monitoring their behavior in a way. Um, and so, you know, like Jennifer Jason Lee's character. And, and so like, I think they're touching on themes that everybody could relate to at that time, but they're also a universal theme that doesn't go away because we all have memories of that. So I, I think too, touching on those archetypal themes is also something that I think if you find movies that you really love or that are prominent in you know that genre i think there there's archetypal themes that are told really well that everybody can relate to even if we don't consciously know we're relating from wes craven director of the hills have eyes and last house on the left a new masterpiece in fantasy terror nightmare on elm street and we'll bring it back there. You mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street, written and directed by Wes Craven and released in 1984. How did you hear about that movie? Um, same agent sent me the script. Um, they were really good at the time. Um, <laughs> and um, they sent me the script, but they said, this has been sent because um, Wes Craven had seen a TV movie I did called My Mother's Secret Life that it was with Lonnie Anderson and it had aired just after Fast Times came out. And at the time, it was the highest rated movie, TV movie, I don't know, you know, of the century. You know, I don't know, but it was up there. And um, uh, he wanted me to come read for Nancy, <clears throat> which obviously I didn't get. Um, and But my agent didn't want me to do it. And they said, you know, if you do a horror film, it's the end of your trajectory. It's the end of all these things we worked for. And I was like, well, I'm going to go meet him at least. And, and by the way, I was not a horror fan and I, and I'm, I'm still not like a quintessential horror fan. I don't like being scared. I don't, I don't like seeing things I've never thought of that are awful. It's just not in my, it doesn't yeah. release stress for me. It causes stress for me, <laughs> but I, I love reading scary things. And so when I went, meant to, went to meet Wes, I read for Nancy because he had everybody read for Nancy. And then he, we started talking and I said, well, what's it like being in a horror film? You know, I'd still, you know, as a young drama student and all that stuff. And he goes, it's the same as just being in a film. You just find the truth in it and help me tell this story. 
Um, <clears throat> and I was like, well, what exactly is this story? <laughs> like, what is this? And, and then he told me the story of that he had read this article many years ago about these, um, um, I think they were, uh, oh my gosh, he was um, a Filipino man who there was a couple people in some dreams. They were finding that these men were dying in their sleep and they thought of their nightmares. Apparently it was a real article. And I thought that was fascinating. And then we just talked about um, stuff. And then I got called back, but not for Nancy, for Tina. And then <clears throat> I read with Heather, um, Johnny, and uh, Nick Corey, who's now Jesu Garcia. Um, and he's a, become a director. Um, we just, we read together and we sort of improv the party scene. And then he told us in the room, we had the parts, which doesn't happen very often. And, um, and we just had a, a ball. I mean, it was, it was a grueling shoot because it was super low budget. And I think at, at one point near the end, we lost finance, lost financing and Bob Shea had to go out and drum up more financing to finish the film. But, um, we're all still good friends. Um, uh, I kind of feel like Nightmare on Elm Street and Better Off Dead were like my college years because I didn't go to college. I just went to drama school um, because I'm fr still friends with them. So I feel like we were like they we were in the fraternity and sororities together and we've all stayed friends. We were in like Nightmare Pie. <laughs> nightmare Pie. <laughs> Pie Cap and Nightmare. <clears throat> the, the core of the movie's danger is, it, is that it taps into you know our primal fear of, of helplessness you know <laughs> being attacked while you're asleep or being killed while you're asleep and um, when you were reading the script did were you able to, to grasp <laughs> that um okay first of all while i was reading the script i was terrified because i i do love reading scary things but i was like this reads like a scary novel um I think because I was so young, my first thing I tapped into was, yes, I mean, obviously, we've all had nightmares where you, you get paralyzed and you can't wake up. And I felt like that's what that was. I was like reading about my character and I was like, oh, it's that feeling where you're you're like in between sleep and awake, but your body is paralyzed, you know, and you can't scream and you can't move. I felt like that was that. But but also I tapped into, <clears throat> sorry, um, that all the children in this movie uh, were children whose parents weren't really were going through their own personal drama. So these kids had formed their own family. And I, I felt, I felt I totally understood that. And so I tapped into that, but yes, that fear. And um, cause I used to have a recurring nightmare as a, as a kid. And so I was able to go, Oh my gosh, but I wasn't, I didn't fight in my dream. I always got paralyzed in my dream. <clears throat> so yeah, it was really, it was scary. And then, um, and then doing it was so interesting because, you know, a, it was low budget and literally you would just have, you know, two grips standing off the screen, throwing buckets of blood on you and stuff. And, you know, you're like, ah, I'm scared. Um, but <laughs> it was, it was fun to help tell that story. And it was, as a young actor, it was fun to, rise to the challenge of trying to tell that story truthfully without, you know, schmacting in a horror film, you know, like, cause he, he, he wanted it to be, and I'm so grateful for that because it was a great learning thing. Cause I was, I hadn't done that many things. And, 
you know, I still thought, oh, you're in a horror movie. You, you do horror. And he's like, no, 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 no. All acting is acting. Always just find the truth. Find it in you and let your let what makes you, you help tell that story. And I, I thought was great wisdom for a young actor. And, um, and, and it was, I loved working with him. He was very funny. He's very professorial, very, very smart, very well-read. And well, he, he was a professor and, um, and super funny and always dressed really nice on the set every day. And it elevated the set. It made other people try harder to, you know, put on a clean shirt and come to work. I always remember being whatever, the success of the movie, but I remember finding out that the actor who played Freddy Krueger was the mm. same actor who played Willie, the TV show V. Yes. I couldn't, I couldn't put the two together. And, I know. And his story from famously Robert Englund is supposed to be an amazingly nice guy, but to portray such a vicious uh, and legendary, he's up there as probably one of the all time famous slasher killers of all time. I think so too. I think he's in the pantheon of monsters and, you know, TV movie monsters. I think um, the thing that Robert does so well, um, and I'm going to say back in the old days, like the old, you know, if you want Vincent Price or, you know, pick anybody, Robert was a theater actor. So he was highly trained tons of theater, Shakespeare. So what he brings to Willie is a tremendous toolkit of amazing talent. And then with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street that with Freddy Krueger, my mind went blank. I'm like, wait, what was it again? Um, is that he, he didn't, he wasn't just a guy in he he was just the way he moves his body or the way he would move the claw. That's all that theater training of every movement has to mean something or count. You know, when you're on stage, you you need to have an economy of your movements need to indicate or help tell the story because there's people sitting in the back, you know, of the theater and they can't hear you or see you that well. So every every gesture has to help tell the story. And he was able to bring that to, in my opinion, to um to Freddy Krueger and Willie. And oh my God, so many movies, Buster and Billy. Um, one of my all-time favorites, because I grew up at the beach surfing, was he was in a great movie called Big Wednesday. Did you guys ever see that movie? Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. I read his biography oh. and he mentions it a lot in the um, biography. I was just a surfer it. dude, wasn't he? Yeah. <clears throat> yes. And it's about the Vietnam War and it's just so, it's a beautiful movie. It's one of my favorite movies that he's in i mean i like all this stuff and i, I love him he's, he's he's fantastic um uh and and you know and he really just took the you know the nightmare on elm street and he he just dove in, into it and he he tried to find new and different things in each of the movies to help you know tell the story and um yeah i, I love him he's great watch this Uh, 
Amanda, as you know, we're, we're, we call ourselves a pop culture podcast because we do music, movies, play, albums, a review. And Amanda Weiss, you hold a, a pivotal uh, position in pop culture as the first ever kill by Freddy Krueger in any film. Yep. How does that sit with you? Well, this is what's so funny. It never occurred to me that that was a thing. And then I was at a Comic-Con and this not that many years ago. And somebody said, what's it like <clears throat> to know that you're Freddie's first kill? And I'm like, what? Like, I couldn't even, it didn't fire and come together. And I was like, what? And they're like, you know, and I went, oh my gosh, I am. It, it had just never occurred to me. I just, I don't know why. Um, I, um, But yes. Um, well, you know what? I think it's interesting because that, that role of Tina really helped set up an emotional base for the movie. So you felt connected to it, I think. Um, and then, you know, really that first, somebody timed it once, I think it's 14 minutes that with scenes in between for 14 minutes, which is probably one of the longest fight scenes ever in cinema, I'm fighting Freddy Krueger for my life. I mean, there's scenes in between, but Tina is literally unconsciously engaging the audience with a fight or flight and with a, oh my gosh, not her. And all these things, because I, I, there's like 14 minutes where I'm really fighting for my life, where people are like, somebody listen to her, something's happening. And so I think it sets up an emotional hook so that you're more invested for the rest of the film. Uh, Amanda, were you surprised at the success of the film? Yes, I really was, especially because, you know, my agents had been so down on me for doing it. And they were like, and and uh, by the way, they stopped working hard for me after that. When I went and did the movie, they were like, because at, at the time in the early 80s, you know, the, the business in America anyway was more separated. You were in a soap opera, you stayed there. If you did TV, you stayed there. If you did movies, you stayed there. If you did horror, you were like way down there. And so they just stopped um, um, working hard for me after that. Um to the detriment of my career, I think, because the, so many opportunities fell through the cracks after that. But I had no idea. And after the movie came out, um, I hadn't had a chance to see it. I couldn't go to the screening. Um, I was filming something. Anyway, I wasn't able to. I never actually saw the movie till it came out on VHS. And um, But that Halloween, after it had come out, I was at my mom's house and I was handing out candy and like three little Freddy Kruegers came to the door. And I was like, no way. I'm like, mom, mom, this is, this is from my movie. And she's like, what? Cause they hadn't seen it. And um, I'm like, this is Freddy Krueger. So to this one, his parents are standing there. He was probably like 10. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm Tina from that movie. I play Tina. And they were like, no, and they, they didn't believe me. And I was like, Wah. I was like, well, I do. Happy Halloween. <laughs> and when you were filming, um, I've seen some behind the scenes footage of yourselves, the whole cast yeah. with Robert uh, and Freddie makeup. And you seem to be having a bit of fun, laughing and joking. Were, were you reluctant for you to see him in his full makeup before you shot the scene? Or did you know exactly how he was going to look? We knew, I knew how he was going to look because we would get to makeup and he'd already been there for, I think it took five hours every day to put on that makeup. And so we would come in at the last minute. I mean, um, he jokes about, you know, like we would all walk in and we were so young, they would just like put a little powder on us and comb our hair. And um, he'd been sitting there for five hours. So we would sit and, and chat with him because he's a great raconteur. He has more stories than any 
he should just be doing what he should tour the country just telling stories like like an old is it will rogers used to do that somebody used to do um and he would just sit and talk about doing a play with so-and-so and a movie with this person and you know recite shakespeare to us and i mean he was really like a master class and you know I don't know, acting or something. Um, so we would see him and you would get used to it. And, and then you'd sit down to lunch and look up and go, ah, like, you know, there'd be weird moments you would glance over because you would kind of forget he had it on, um, especially around food. You'd go, um, but um, God, he was such a champ having to do that every day. And then it took a long time to take it off at the end of every night too. So, and he, ha- and he has sensitive skin. So on top of that, he was always irritated and, um, you know, skin, but um, yeah, so we knew I did not know it was going to be a hit, but he and Ronnie Blakely swear they did. I just was kind of like at a point where I had other movies lined up, like right after I did Nightmare, I left to do Better Off Dead, and then right after Better Off Dead, I left to do Silverado, and then right after Silverado, I did Powwow Highway. So I would kind of like it already, I was like, oh yeah, that was really fun, and I stayed in touch with them which I think is amazing too, like with Better Off Dead and Nightmare that we're all still friends because this is pre-cell phones, pre-internet. This is like you really had to like write letters, phone, you know, make phone calls and and actually work to maintain friendships. I think it's a little easier these days or easier to avoid. Like somebody called me the other day without texting first and I'm like, what sort of madness is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard this now. Yeah, I was like, I'm that person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as a director, how was Wes Craven? Uh, would he let the scenes flow? Was he quite adamant in his view of how he wanted it? Would it be shoot after shoot after shoot? He, it, 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 it was a real, uh, it was, it was, it's interesting and his talent is amazing because he was super specific about what he wanted and was cl- able to clearly share that with you in a meaningful way that you understood what he wanted you to do. And yet within that, he wanted to see what you would bring to that little bit of world that he just told you about. So you had freedom within that, which was fantastic, but you knew, because sometimes as an actor, it's it's easy to forget the overall story and you just want your part to shine. (laughs) Be like, yada, yada, yada. Um, This is my moment. Um, And he's like, you know, okay, nobody's moment. Let's just, you're doing this part of the story. So. I found like he was really amazing at that. He was super, just inc- an incredible communicator of what he wanted. And if you had an idea, he would always listen to it and help you find a way to use it within the, not confines, but within the world he's created, you know, because, you know, you want to help tell that story, you know, in a way. But yes, yeah, so you had a lot of freedom because you also understood the boundaries i guess but boundaries makes it sound constricted but you know you within the i'll say boundaries of what he wanted us to do so it was it was a it was and i was just such a sponge of soaking up how to do that i I found it really interesting amanda you mentioned that you're still very friendly in fact you use the phrase long time lifelong friends with the cast of um norman elm street if you're with heather now and i know it's been a long time does anybody ever kind of do a second glance? Yes. And Heather and I see each other often. Um, all, and she just just got a huge TV series, a new Mike Flanagan uh, TV series for Netflix that comes out 
sometime this year. And um, so, is, is this to- a yeah? Uh- <laughs> breaking news yeah, it's breaking news um and it's it's she's gonna be phenomenal in it she's amazing but yes we have so many stories of just randomly i went to visit her and her husband her husband's a special an academy award-winning special effects makeup um designer um i went to visit them in toronto they were filming some sort of zombie thing. I don't, I don't remember the name of it. Oh no. But we were in line to get tickets to something and people were like, Oh my God, it's Tina and Nancy. And then another time we were at a Dodger game and we bought like last minute, super cheap seats. We we're way up in the back and everyone's like, it's Tina and Nancy. What are you guys doing in the cheap seats? <laughs> and then, so yeah, we'll be like, even now there's something and maybe it's our voices or something that triggers people to look if they hear us both talking. Um, although, I mean, I think Heather, she looks, she looks the exact same, but yeah. So every now and then, not as much as before. I think now if it happens, it's more our voices together. It clicks in people that know the movie and they're like, that sounds so familiar. Well, have I seen you two together? I'd pinch myself and say, this better yeah. not be a dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Amanda, our, our next question is actually from my 17 year old daughter who asked oh. me to ask, what was it like to work with Johnny Depp? Oh my gosh. Okay. I was waiting for that. What's your daughter's name? Hannah. Well, um, first of all, he is the nicest, sweetest, most genuine person. He was then exactly how he is now. The, the It's just, he was kind of just born that, bohemian beautiful beautiful rock and roller soul um hard hard worker when we were doing nightmare he hadn't done he was in a band um and he had a coach on the set i mean very hard worker didn't take anything for granted and um just you know a sweet person and he was beautiful and it wasn't like a big leap to see him go from that to the movie and then 21 jump street. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he, you, you could sense that about him just cause he, it was sort of preternaturally beautiful. <laughs> like definitely, you know, um, I think the story goes Wes Craven's daughter, who was our age, she was a, a teenager. She was sitting there when he was looking at the tapes of actors to play, his role and he'd read a whole bunch of kind of bigger jock because the role was really a jock and Johnny Depp came on and she goes, Nope, Nope, Nope. That's it. That's that's that you have to hire that person. So I, I, I think she gets some of the credit for steering in that direction. So yeah, he was great. Tell her she, that she it's a, it's a well-deserved crush. Okay. And the, one of the last questions for Nightmare on Street, the remake. Did you have any interest at all in seeing the remake? I didn't, but not because I don't, I think Jackie Earl Haley, is that how you say his name? Yeah. yeah. He's a phenomenal actor. I don't, I, um, and, but honestly, I don't like being scared. I just don't go see horror movies. I, I know that's terrible. I've gone to see anything Heather is in, but this is what happens. I sit next to her at the premiere or whatever. 
and I scream inappropriately. Like I scream when things aren't even scary. So I ruin all the jump scares. Somebody will just open a cupboard and I'll just randomly start screaming because that scares me. And it has not, but then I ruin the jump scare two seconds later for everybody in the audience. Like literally people are like, shut up. And I'm like, I can't help it. I'm so stressed out watching these movies that I just scream the entire time. Like I scream, like I would scream if you nodded your head just now, because I'd be like, that must mean something. So I didn't see it because of that reason. I don't have any political stance on it. Although I just have so many friends that are writers that have beautiful original content. And I don't understand this need to rehash something that's already fine. I mean, I could see if somebody had an interesting take on it to add something, but they kind of just copied it scene for scene and then added CGI. Apparently that's what I hear. And I don't know that that's worth um, I don't know because what it did to the franchise was there was there was talk about things of using the people from the original movie to kind of do like origin stories like Halloween is doing now, and that can't happen now because the franchise split off into this new thing. So there there can never be an a uh, you know origin stories now or whatever because that company. Whoever owns it now, they're going in a different direction. Apparently, that's what I hear. I could be wrong. Yeah, it's a safe bet, though, for them. It's just to make money, isn't it? Jump under the bandwagon with the name. Yeah. 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 And I think, um, I mean, I think there's things like, what's the pod people movies? Um, home where people who were born in the pods. The old, there's like uh, counters of the third. No. Um, Day of the uh, Triffids? No, not Day of no, the Triffids. It was 1979. Tom Sutherland was in it. Yes. And then, and body snatchers. Body snatchers. Okay. Those movies, that's been remade like three times, maybe four times, I think. Um, every single one of those takes has been, I think, really interesting and they kind of help think differently and they're done really well. So it can be done. I just think it isn't often done. I mean, I think... Um, I don't know. Why not just add to the franchise? Why remake yeah. it? I don't understand, especially with something like Nightmare on Elm Street that's had so many successful films. Um, I mean, sadly, I would have loved to have done a, an origin story with that, but. Um, it's yeah. not as if Robert Englund is not, you know, willing and able to step back into the shoes. The fans around the world would, would you know, chop their hands off to see him do it one more time. Yeah. Or, or even if he played it, like, even if he was never in the makeup, yeah, played as as the pedophile, and you know, you see yes. deal, dealing with your parents in the movie, yeah. and then you come along. That yeah. would be brilliant. Yeah, or you know, or yeah. So it's like there's just there were so many things being floated around that we were Heather, I you know, all of us were um, up for. And then when they did the remake, they they didn't they literally put out in the breakdown. We don't want anyone from the original movie in this we don't want any cameos this is not an homage this is a new i mean they were like total dicks about it, it actually well, i can just give <laughs> so. you my own personal uh, take on it i i didn't even finish the film yeah, i didn't watch it yeah i watched half yeah. it um and as you said jack early he's, he's an amazing actor but the makeup wasn't good yeah. the, the, you know I, I turned it off there was nothing that caught me you know you, you watch a film for 15 minutes some films you would watch it to the end just for the sake of nostalgia, or whatever. I, I just turned it off. Yeah. 
Well, I think too, you know, with that kind of makeup in this day and age with HD, which, but as a woman aging, not very nice for it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, go, ah, but um, I, I just feel like it's almost like you'd have to find a way to, to, I mean, I know you can set the camera to be more film oriented oriented or something because i just think like that kind of special effects makeup boy you have to really be careful in this day of hd because i just don't think you know i mean like i said i haven't seen it but i am a huge fan of of jackie earl haley i just think he um he's just so he's so good he well he reminds me of robert in the way that they, you know, that can disappear into something. And I just, you know, he was, he was also in a lose, lose situation because he's being dropped into a franchise that are, that, that became divided because of the remake. But in my, my opinion, I'm like, I'm like sounding like such a know-it-all. The truth is I don't know anything about anything. <laughs> well, look, we put all the nightmare behind us and we move on with your career. So. Does it ever feel like everyone's got more going than you do? Oops. That everyone is smart. So you're Al Myers, kid? Yes, I am. You look pretty stupid to me. Thank you. You say the best skier in town just ran off with your girlfriend? Even your younger brother does better than you do? (laughs) And that nobody even cares? That broke up with me. Oh, that's nice. Well, you might be right. But remember one thing. I haven't even been to New York City. Nobody was ever better off dead. Amanda, in 1985, uh, we saw you start not one but two classic movies, Silverado and Better Off Dead, both really good movies, very different genres. Uh, Did you want to avoid being typecast? I know you said you did. Um, Well, you know what? I think I wish... I had put more thought into growing my career. I was just young and eager and wanted to work a lot. So I just kind of whatever came my way. And it just happened to be for that two years, I got to work with the best directors of that time, Um, you know, Lawrence Kasdan. um, So better off dead, I went in to read and, uh, I started to read for um, uh, uh, Monique and the Savage was like, you know, I just really think you're Beth. And of course I wanted to be Monique because she was the the lead of the movie. And I was like, oh, and then I started reading Beth. I went out in the, the waiting room and I started reading Beth because I'd read the script. And by the way, hands down one of the funniest scripts I've ever read in my entire life. I mean, the movie is funny, but the script was even funnier. Um, and so I went in and I went, Oh, she's so, so mean. And, and, um, so I played her, you know, so it was fun. So I found a way to play her mean, but she still needed to be, have something redeemable because all these people want to take her out. And, and I wasn't like a supermodel looking person. I was like, you know, cute for a small town, cute. So I was like, she needs to have something that makes everybody want to take her out. And so that's how I got the part because I guess a lot of people had gone in and just read her so mean that you went, who'd be taking her out? So anyway, that was my take on it. And we had so much fun making that movie. We laughed 
I mean, it was like, get up in the morning, laugh all day. We would do karaoke at night because we were staying at this um, lodge or these condos up in, I think it was Snowbird, Utah for most of the film. And oh my gosh, we had so much fun and still great friends with Curtis and Diane and and the director and John too, but not as much as, um, you know, we all still see each other. And um, I love Savage Steve Holland. And then funny story, I read for Silverado. This is a true story. <clears throat> I go in to read for Silverado and uh, for the role of Phoebe. And in the script, it said, you know, she's, I think they even used the term like model gorgeous or something. So I walk into the head of Warner Brothers casting and I said, this is because I was young and stupid. I sit down and I go, listen, we both know I'm not going to get this part, but I wanted to meet you. I'm a huge fan of all the movies you do. And I was thinking maybe you could keep me in mind for a part that I'd have a better chance of getting. And she just looks at me like I am insane. Because, you know, first of all, I look like I'm like 15. And she goes, get out of my office now. Get out. Get out. I want you to go out in the waiting room. Rethink what you just said knock on my door when you're ready and come back in and do what you're here to do. And I was just like, Oh my God, I'm in so much trouble. (laughs) Mind you, everyone in the waiting room has heard this. So I go outside and everyone is like, you're an idiot. And so I'm just standing there. And I was like, just standing outside her door. And I was like, did she really want me to knock on her door and come back in? I don't want her to be more mad at me than she already is. So I stood there for a few minutes. I'm like almost crying. I'm beat red. I'm sweating. I'm just like shaking all my Catholic guilt. So I like knock on the door and she goes, who is it? And I go, it's Amanda. She's like, Amanda, who? I'm like, it's Amanda. Where's I'm here to read for Phoebe. She goes, come in. And then she pretended that nothing had happened. And I read for it. And then I get a call back and I go in like two days later and meet Lawrence Kasdan. And he's just staring at me the whole time, like with a smirk on it. So I know she's told him the story and I read and they're both like, fine. And so part of me thinks he just wanted to meet this person that was so stupid. (laughs) Are you the one? Yeah. Then I got the part and, and, um, and then uh, this is obviously pre 9-11. So you could like walk people to the gate at the airport. My little sister's walking me to the gate at the airport to leave to fly to New Mexico to film. And I'm like, <clears throat> I think they have my resume mixed up with somebody else's photo. I really don't think these people wanted me for this part. I'm just, I still never believed that I had the role until I got there. And, um, you know, they were doing wardrobe fittings and wig fittings and all these things. So my, that's my, I, I heard through the grapevine that Wally Nasida, who was the casting director, told that story at, at dinner parties to humiliate me. Um, she was like, this little pipsqueak had the nerve to, <laughs> she was like the head of casting for Warner Brothers. She had a lot of power. And I was just like, I had no idea. So I think my career would be in a better place today, possibly if I had better mentoring <laughs> about how you're supposed to behave. And how you pick roles and, you know, who, you know, how to, uh, how to create relationships on sets. 
better off dead your character did you get much uh grief we say in ireland and i say like uh heat probably in america for that character for dumping john cusack oh my gosh so much and i still do on social media people will make things like well you know if you hadn't dumped lane or whatever and i'm like I didn't dump him the script, dumped him. Um, so yeah, people are like, you're you're like one of the original mean girls. I'm like, I know. Thank you. <laughs> Was that based on true events, apparently? Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, exaggerated true events. Um, Savage Steve was an avid skier in high school, and there's a true story that he just had a mad crush on this girl, um, my character, and they dated for a while. And he says until she woke up and realized that he he was a total dork and that she, uh, you know, she was out of his league apparently, and um, and how crestfallen he was, and and so yeah, all those events are based loosely on uh, him and his his um, you know tormented teen years. My dark passenger is like a trapped coal miner, always tapping, always letting me know it's still in there, still alive. Tonight's the night, and it's going to happen again and again. The night when a primal, sacred need calls to me. I've waited. It's time. Dexter, I need you to go to an all-night pharmacy right away. I'm kind of in the middle of something. Whatever you're drinking, wait. Kids. Uh, Amanda, you mentioned being, for the phrase you used was a journeyman uh, actress, actor. Uh, But you've appeared in some of the most highly rated TV shows of all time. And I'm just going to, you know, Cheers, Cagney and Lacey, Quantum Leap, CSI. And I am going to say Dexter, right? I know it's only put Dexter. Oh, yes. It it looks like you've never stopped acting or being out. Of, it doesn't look like you've been out of work at all. How do you keep the passion for your craft alive? Well, you know what? Thank you for that. That was really kind of you to say and really nice. Um, I think also, I think if, if I haven't worked in a while. I'll usually go sit in on my acting teacher's classes and, or, um, you know, I like to study. I'm not studying right now, but um, gosh, I had some of the great acting teachers and the last, you know, like 15 years, 15 years, 10, 12 years, I've studied on and off with a guy named Stuart Rogers here in LA. And he's kept it. So like, if I didn't work for a while, I could be on stage doing you know, Richard the second or, you know, something to keep the the juices flowing. And then I think I'm just ever optimistic that tomorrow will be a better day, you know, that somebody will wake up and say, Oh my gosh, we need Amanda Wiss to come to Ireland and film film a movie. You know, or or I just always feel like something good lies ahead of me, I think. I think um, if you have that belief it will happen. You know, it's, it's a positive mindset. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's heartbreak things. Like I was supposed to recur on charmed, but then that didn't work out. And I did the one episode and the role on Dexter was possibly recurring, but then I sound and look very much on film, like the lead in that show, which wasn't apparent until, you know, I was there. And then I was like, no, I'll dye my hair and I'll talk down here. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) Julie, Julie Bales. Yes. 
And so, I mean, I look like her, her mom or her aunt or something. And they were like, that's just weird. And um, so I've had some heartbreaks in TV like that. Um, A lot of pilots that didn't go. um, But I just did a really fun episode of the rookie that's going to air gosh, in the next couple of weeks. And have to say Nathan's billion was so beautiful and nice. And um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his and to have him just be so I, I don't know, just gentlemanly and fun. And he was so kind, very nice man. Amanda, my brother is a, a big, big fan of the Highlander series. <gasps> and when I mentioned that we were going to be talking to Amanda Weiss from uh, Nightmare Empty, he checked, he checked out your review and he got, please, I never ask, I never ask. So this question is from Paddy Jennings, who is the biggest fan of the Highlander TV show in Ireland, I'm going to say. And the question is, what was Adrian Paul like to work with? And what, oh, are your, what are your fondest memories of that show? Oh, my gosh. Tell your brother that's a great question. Um, okay, first of all, hands down, one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. Like, or, or I mean, there's, there's a couple different things. I'll get to Highlander, but there's a couple different things. Like, Better Off Dead, I've never laughed so hard on a set. Silverado was just magical. And I remember Brian Dennehy telling me at one point, he said, soak this up because it's never like this on a long movie. This There's some magic happening here where we all got together every Saturday night and had Motown dance parties and everyone just, it, it was magical. The Highlander was one of my favorite, favorite jobs. I love the role. I love the genre so much. And Adrian Paul is now and was then just a consummate professional, one of the hardest workers I've ever been around. While the rest of us are in between scenes, pre-cell phone and stuff, like you actually talk to each other on a set. Um, he had he was out, he never had a down moment. He was always practicing with a sword, always practicing a sword fight. Um, they were always having to like read reattach his his hair piece and i mean just everything about his job was he had to work you've just so ruined it for pa- you've just ruined it for patty saying he wore a wig yeah. well i don't know for a fact he did <laughs> no, but they were he always, thought like, that ponytail was, was spot <laughs> <Yeah>. on <laughs> and um but he ha- he worked so hard and like he's still like now at comic cons teaches sword experiences and stuff i mean he really became a skilled he comes here he runs uh sword yeah. weekends yes. in ireland he does yeah yeah yes he does and um, I actually just reached out to, there's Comic-Con Ireland. They this weekend? Well, yeah, I was like, uh, I really sorry, a, f- a few weeks ago. Yes, I reached out to them and I was like, I really want to come to your show. And it was crickets. They never even responded. I was like, mm. I really want to come to Ireland to go to a show. Um, but um, the Highlander was just so much fun. And I loved all the guest stars. There was always the most amazing guest stars from Joan Jett to you name it. Um, Roland and, but Adrian Paul was lovely, smart, kind, funny, hard worker, um, fun to play with. Um, but really admired his dedication to, I mean, he, he never had a moment's rest and then he'd get up and just start the whole thing over again every day. And then on the weekends he was practicing sword fights. You know, he just, he really didn't, um, have, have a moment to rest. But okay. yes, he was great. The show was great. 
Cool. Amanda, uh, I know you mentioned you're going to be on the rookie. Uh, what else is coming up for you? Well, there is a, a horror film. Yeah, see, I don't like watching horror, but I love making horror. I just think it's so, I think it's so much fun. Um, it's called The Eye in You. And it's a little bit, a little bit of whatever happened to baby Jane-ish. I, I'm in that phase of my career where I get to play the older crazy women, which I'm super stoked about. Um, so that is coming up later this year. And then I'm going to do a really fun movie I'm excited about. It's a country Western movie called Catch a Fallen Star about this man uh, who was a famous country Western singer and sort of his career fell apart from drinking and I play his ex-wife and it's a beautiful story filled with great music. And so I'm super excited about that. Um, Cause I'm a, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a huge country Western. Oh. I love country music. It's literally my jam. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. And so on that note, we end every episode and I've given you a heads up on this, Amanda. We ask all our guests, it's last orders in the last chance saloon. You have $1 in your pocket. The jukebox is calling. What song does Amanda Voice play out on? I play the Beatles' All You Need Is Love. Beautiful. And then and everybody that, Amanda, can sing it aloud together. Yeah, <laughs> with that, Amanda, that's the song we're going to play this interview out on. And uh, for myself, Kieran, and Mark, Mark's not here, Mark's our editor-in-chief, uh, we thank you from everyone in the room. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are so lovely. And I hope we get the chance to do this again. Absolutely. 